Would you turn with me, please, to the uh, eighth chapter of Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians eight. It's my task this morning to uh, to talk about money, not uh, acquiring more of it, but giving more of it. And uh, I do so because the topic comes next in our study of Second Corinthians. That's one of the uh, nice things about teaching expositorily through a book. Sooner or later, you get around to uh, those tough topics that you might want to avoid unless they were facing you right there in the text, and this is one of them. Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, oh, no, he's going to start talking about money. One of the reasons I came to this church is that they don't talk about money much, and already uh, the preacher has his hand in my pocket. I knew it would come. Uh, All of you, I'm sure, have seen the uh, minister's handshake. It's uh, like that. And that's what most people think, that uh, pastors live with their handout or live for handouts. A friend of mine went over to the West Coast uh, uh, on a reconnaissance mission for us a few years back to look at other church buildings. That's when we were thinking about building this this structure. And he uh, was being shown through a building by uh, someone in that church. And as they came to the auditorium, my friend asked how many it seated, and the man who was showing him through said, it seats 500. He said, look at that, 500 paying customers, he said. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of bad humor, really, about, <laughs> about pastors and money. And unfortunately, some of it, some of the things that you see going on are really very saddening. We read not too many months ago uh, of a uh, television personality who was trying to avert financial crisis in his own television program, appealing for funds. And the same week, we were told, he purchased a $450,000 house in Palm Springs, a $65,000 Rolls Royce, and a new Mercedes Benz. Because, as he put it, my wife and I need to get away. Uh, That's sad. That's really sad. But that's the sort of thing that's going on. I just uh, this past week read about an organization that's been raising funds for Ethiopia since 1980. They have raised millions of dollars for Ethiopia. And not one cent, not one cent of that money has reached Ethiopia. It's all been misappropriated as far as they're they're able to tell. Now, we, we need to learn how to give. And we need to learn how to give God's way. And that's why we want to look at this passage. And some of you are going to be surprised. You're going to be greatly surprised. You'll see why we don't talk about money much in this church. Because the perspective that Paul takes on on giving is quite different from what you usually hear. Now let me give you a little bit of background on this passage. Just sketch in some of the background so you know what's going on. A year before, Paul had written to this church in Corinth and he had told them about the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem were always poor. They, uh, they were poor for various reasons, not through um, mismanagement of their own funds, but because they were being persecuted. They lived in a non-Christian community. There were economic sanctions that, that, were, uh, that they were experiencing, feeling, and, and, and they were hurting financially. They always were. And a number of times, Paul had appealed to the churches in Macedonia and in Achaia and and, uh, in other places in order to raise funds for these needy Christians. Now, this he had done a year before. The the story is told in 1 Corinthians 16. 
And uh, he told them that on his way through Corinth, he would pick up this collection and he would take it on to Jerusalem. But as you know, he was delayed because of various problems. And there were some personal problems that developed between the church in Corinth and Paul. And, and the collection lost momentum and, and they, they stopped collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, to encourage them to, to get along with this, uh, with this collection for these needy saints. Now let's read through the first few verses where Paul uh, appeals to them on the basis of the example of the churches in Macedonia. Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that is, in the churches of Berea and in the cities of Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi, churches that Paul had founded in Asia Minor, or in Macedonia, that in a great deal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty, for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, relief of the saints, and this not as we had expected. First, they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The first thing he refers to is the circumstances out of which these Macedonian believers uh, gave. They were, he said, afflicted, and they were poverty-stricken. They were afflicted because they were persecuted. This was a church that had been under the gun from the very beginning, from the very founding of the church. They had been hounded and, and uh, harassed. And secondly, they were a poverty-stricken people. They were very poor. The Romans had exploited all of their natural resources. Macedonia had gone through a civil war. The region was, the, their, their fields had been decimated by this war, and, and they were suffering a, a great deal. A lot of financial uh, woes and problems. Nevertheless, they gave. They, they didn't say to Paul, we've got troubles of our own. Don't tell us about the believers in, in Jerusalem. We, we've got our own taxes to pay. We have our own kids to put through college. Don't, don't tell me about their problems. You, you want to see some troubles. Look at my checkbook. No, Paul points out that these people not only gave to support their own ministries, the ones in Macedonia, but they were willing to contribute to the relief of the saints in, in Jerusalem. The circumstances had nothing to do with whether or not they gave. They gave out of their poverty. The second thing that he comments upon is the fact that they gave joyously. He says that out of their joy and liberality, the word means generosity, they gave. In other words, they were characterized by a kind of joyous giving. They weren't stingy. They weren't grasping. They weren't greedy. They didn't uh, think of their possessions as their own. They were just open-handed and open-hearted. They were willing to give and share. And that, I believe, is one of the marks of, of the real thing, of authentic Christian faith. When, when Christ comes to live in a person, they become a giver. They start thinking in terms of sharing instead of acquiring. He just... Christ just turns us wrong side out. Turns everything upside down. We begin thinking in terms of others' needs rather than acquiring to, to meet our own needs. Uh, I had a friend who this uh, few weeks ago worked on a shotgun that my father sent me. He doesn't hunt anymore, so he sent me his 12-gauge, and I gave it to a friend to uh, do some repairs so he could do some repairs on it. And when I 
I received the gun back. He had two boxes of hand-loaded shotgun shells along with it. And I said, look, I, you know, I, I can afford to buy shotgun shells. That's all right, he said. I like to do this. I want to do it. I want to share it with you. I uh, had a friend, Eric Sigward, that I knew back in the days I was working with college students who was one of the most generous giving men I've ever met in my life. He, would, he, he literally gave me the shirt off of his back one day. We, he had this old ratty sweater. Greatest looking sweater I ever saw. Looked like it belonged on a hip poet. Crew neck sweater with leather sleeves and it was all baggy and stretched out of shape and moth eaten. It was a terrific looking sweater. And I, <laughs> I coveted that sweater from the very beginning, I, from the time I saw it. Never said anything to about it till one day we were walking across the campus and, and I commented on how, what a great sweater he had and he just peeled that thing right off. I'll never forget. And handed it to me. I thought, oh, Eric. I, you, I, you can't do that. Sure, I just, I just want you to have it. And he, he wouldn't take it back. Now, those are just little things, but they're an indication of an attitude of heart, see, a desire to give. And Paul says that's what, that's what characterized this church in, in Macedonia. They weren't tightwads. They weren't stingy. They just gave. And they gave, and they gave, and they gave beyond their ability, as he puts it. That's the new tithe in the New Testament. The, the Old Testament tithe, as you know, was 10%. They were to take 10% of their grain or, or their produce, and they, and they brought it into the temple, and they gave that to the, to the priest to support the ministry in, uh, of the priesthood. But there's no tithe mentioned in the New Testament. The idea of 10% of our, of our gross income, giving 10% of our income, doesn't enter into the picture at all. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 9, if you turn over one more page, he says in verse 7, Let everyone do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I don't think we can settle on how much we're supposed to give, except we ought to give more than we think we can spare. As, the, as someone put it once, uh, when someone said, I, I, I think I could give $20 and not feel it, his rejoinder was, well, then give 40 and feel it. And we, we, we ought to be able to feel it. The, the pattern of giving in the New Testament is not a, a 10% quota. It's not a levy that's laid on us. It's, it's a, underlying it is an attitude of giving unsteadingly, giving as we purpose in our heart, not because it's demanded of us, giving because there are needs that need to be met. And, and very often, as in the case of the Macedonians, giving way beyond what we think we can spare. You see. Now, he says another thing about their, their giving. It's interesting to me. It's without any pressure whatever. Paul didn't pressure these people. He didn't beg them to give. As a matter of fact, they begged him. And he said, that, that was more than I expected. That's what he means by the first line of verse 5, which goes with verse 4, not the rest of verse 5. They begged us, he says, for the favor of participating in the, in the support of the saints. And we didn't expect this, he said. We thought that, that they might not be able to give because they were poverty-stricken. And as a matter of fact, reading between the lines, I can imagine Paul saying, you, you people can't afford this gift. You have your own needs to take care of. And they said, oh, Paul, let us give. 
There, there weren't any uh, thermometers in the churches, you know, one for Corinth and one for Berea and one for Thessalonica. And Paul wasn't saying, oh, see how much the Bereans gave. You've got to give more than they give. None of that. And how, how different that is from the patterns that we see in, in churches today. Pressuring people to give. Sometimes it's very real pressure. I have a friend who told me that in the particular church he attended, the elders of the church would pick out a calf from his herd, and when the calf was weaned, they would come and get it. They would bring the truck and back it up to the barn, and they'd put the, truck, the calf in the in the trailer and haul it away and sell it. He, he had no choice. They picked out the calf. He wasn't even permitted to make his own choice. And sometimes the appeals are based upon guilt. Sometimes they're emotional appeals. And all of them are based on the wrong motivation. The only motivation that's valid is the one that, that Paul describes in verse 5. He says, first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, the, the reason for giving is not to avoid taxes. As a matter of fact, that, that shouldn't even enter into our thinking to any great extent. Some people just, they won't give unless they can get a tax break. We need to remember that that is a privilege that's granted to us by our government. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And it may someday be taken away from us. If it is, it shouldn't make any difference. And even today, if you have an opportunity, or I do, to give directly to an individual without taking the tax benefit, we still ought to give. Because the, the motivation behind our giving is, is, is not to avoid taxes, fundamentally. Nor is it to gain a reputation as a giver. Jesus had a lot to say about not letting one hand know what the other is doing when, when you give. Nor should our motivation be to uh, somehow uh, impress the Lord with our, with our commitment. There are some people who give just to assuage their conscience. They're living ungodly lives in some area, and they know it, and they're unwilling to sit in judgment on that sin, and so they give out of a sense of guilty conscience. And others, simply because the church levies a gift on There are all sorts of motivations, but the only one that makes any sense out of, uh, at all is the one that Paul describes here in verse 5 when he says, Get people to give themselves to the Lord, and you don't need to worry about money. That takes care of itself. And I say that so often to young pastors. Don't talk to your people about money. Don't beg for money. You don't have to say anything about money. Get people to give themselves to God, and everything else is taken care of. Because after all, that's what God wants. He doesn't want your money. Don't you understand that? He doesn't want my money. He's not up there pacing the floor and wringing his hands and biting his nails and wondering if he'll have enough money to, to fulfill the Great Commission. That's not his problem. He has all the money in the world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our gifts. If you want to know God's estimate of what we value the most, uh, just think for a moment of what he uses to pave the streets in heaven. He uses gold for asphalt up there. He's not impressed by our gold doesn't want our gold. What he wants is you and me. See, it's all he wants. He wants us to yield up our life to him. You see, that is the only thing that will satisfy you and me. The, the, reason, we, the, the reason we become acquisitive, the reason we're greedy, the reason we don't want to give is because we, we, have, we think that this is, what, this is what will satisfy us. My investments program. Or acquiring a house of a certain size or a certain type or buying another automobile or, or buying a mountain cabin 
or any number of other things, none of which are, are necessarily bad in themselves. But we think that this is what we need to fulfill us and satisfy us, but it never satisfies us. The, the longing in our heart can only be satisfied by God. Don't you, don't you understand that? He's the only one that can satisfy us. God has implanted in all of us a yearning to know him and to love him and to worship him. And apart from God, there, there is no, absolutely no way of assuaging that, that longing. And on the other hand, God is longing for us. That's what he said to the woman at the well. God is seeking men and women to worship him. He's seeking you, this young woman that had gone through one man after another, trying to find some solution to the hurt, and hunger, and thirst in her life. Jesus said, you'll, you'll never find it that way. You'll only find it in God. And it's not hard. God is longing after you. He's intruding into your life. He's invading your, your thoughts and your mind. He's the one that puts that yearning in the depths of your, of your heart. He loves you and he wants to know you as well as for you to know him. See. Now that's what God wants. Now that's what God wants. And that's what satisfies us. And when that becomes true in our lives, then giving just takes care of itself. Now that's Paul's, the emphasis that Paul makes in this example. First, he says, they gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave to us. Now, in verses 6 through 9, he uh, turns to a direct appeal to the, uh, to the church in Corinth. Consequently, he says, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Titus was uh, to be sent on this uh, errand down to Corinth to make, take, uh, receive the collection. He was Paul's envoy. And just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but it's proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul alludes to the the wealth of his church in Corinth. They had a number of spiritual resources. They had uh, they have faith. He said, which is either a reference to their dependence upon God or upon the fact that they had the faith down pat. They they were orthodox in their belief. And secondly, he says, you have teachers. You're rich in teachers who understand the scriptures and who can give utterance to it. They can proclaim the truth. And you have the love that I implanted there when, when I came and told you about the love of God. Now, he says, the proof is in the pudding. It's one thing to talk about love. Uh, it's another thing to act in, in a loving way. And the most loving thing you can do, he says, is to provide for the relief of the saints. Meet a practical need. It's right in front of you. It's the same argument that James makes in chapter 2. And he says, if you see your brother come to the front door and he's without food and clothing, and you say, go and be warmed and filled, and you don't give him the things that are needful for his body, how can you say the love of Christ dwells in you? It's just love talk. That's all it is. And that's what we, that's what we love to do. We love to talk about love. But there's more to it than talking about it. There's, there, there is this matter of meeting the practical, personal needs of, of, these, of these believers over in, in Jerusalem. So he says, now prove it. You're talking about love. 
You're rich in teaching. You know the truth. Now let's let's see the response. And you notice he does not command. He urges. He implores. He encourages. But he says, I'm not speaking this as a command. I, I just want you to prove the earnestness of, of your love, the sincerity of your love to the Macedonians and others. Because he, he says love will impoverish itself. And, and he, he cites perhaps the best example of all. If you want to see an example of how much love, love will impoverish you, look at the example of Jesus. Who, he says, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, that you, through his poverty, may become rich. Our Lord had it all. As Paul puts it, he was in the form of God. He had everything. He had the angels to minister to him. All of heaven was his. He set all of that aside, and he came to earth, and he became dirt poor. When he wanted to use an illustration that uh, involved the use of a coin, he had to borrow one from a friend because he didn't even have one in his pocket. And uh, we're told in one of the Gospels that when he was through with one of his discourses, everybody went back to their homes, and Jesus went to the, to the Mount of Olives. They went home. He... Uh, he got out his sleeping bag and, and crawled into it because that's all he had. As he put it, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He was dirt poor. But more than financially poor, he laid aside all of his independent use of his attributes as God, and he impoverished himself for us. You see what Paul is saying? If you want an example of what love does, look at Jesus. He gave it all up for you. To make you rich. And now Paul says, if Jesus has not done anything for you, then don't you give a dime. But if he has, and if you see uh, something of the love of, of Christ in his, in his actions, and if, if you see what he has done for you in making you rich as a result of his poverty, then he says you'll give. You know, he says, the grace or the giving. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, uh, Carolyn has been, was in California all this last week. As you know, she spoke at uh, Mount Hermon. And by the way, for those of you that prayed for her, I just want to thank you. As does she. She just had a great time. God really used her there in that women's conference. And we appreciate very much your concern and your prayer. While she was gone, I had to fix Josh's lunches. I was never much in favor of federally funded lunch programs, but I am now. <laughs> that is a hassle. I, I had to get up 30 minutes before Josh got up, and he gets up really early to go to school just so I'd have the lunch ready. Not eating, I'm not even talking about breakfast. I'm talking lunch. That is a, that's a big chore. And uh, I, when, one morning I was preparing that lunch, and thinking about all the stuff to go in, in it, in it, I thought of a little boy with his bag lunch with which Jesus fed the 5,000. And it occurred to me uh, that you know, we think about the miracle. We tend to center on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and forget the fact that this little boy gave up his lunch. He, he probably was going fishing. And his mother rummaged around the kitchen, you know, put some fish in a baggie or something, and couple of loaves of bread in there and some Fritos and some other stuff and tied it up and, and he went off to go fishing and I don't know about you but I know how much my kids eat and when they've been fishing all day they're hungry the little boy gave up his sack lunch he had no idea that Jesus was going to feed him and the other 499,000 he gave up his lunch for the Lord's sake 
Now, that's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about here. We just give. That's one of the hallmarks, one of the, the, the marks of authentic Christianity is a, is a giving out of a full heart of appreciation for all that God has done for us. Nobody has to beg us. Nobody has to put the arm on us. Nobody has to demand anything. We just give when, when we see a need. Now, uh, Paul goes on to establish another principle in verses 10 through 12. Paul says, I give my opinion in this matter. Again, he's not putting pressure on them. He says, I, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that once you make up your mind to be a giver, the amount is irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference how much you give. What God's looking for is not specific amounts. He wants to see the heart. That's one of the reasons why I never look at our books. I have no idea what anybody in this church gives. I don't want to know. It doesn't make any difference. I would say that nine-tenths of our elders don't know, except, just th- except those that are directly involved with, the, with our finances. Who cares? That's not the issue. It's not how much we give, because we're not trying to establish a reputation, any of us, for giving. God's not impressed by that. Neither should we be impressed. What, what God is concerned about is the heart, the giving heart. And Paul says, well, once, once that issue is settled and I'm going to give of my time and my money and my energy and my possessions and my home and my toys and my automobiles and my clothes and everything that I have, doesn't matter what. The, the issue is, is the heart attitude, the desire to give what, what God has imparted to us. And then he goes on in verse 13, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, he's not saying that there ought to be absolute equality, that we ought to pool all of our funds and share them equally. That's not the point he's making. And that's very clear from the illustration that he uses, which we'll look at in a moment. What he's saying is that there are some times that you have a lack and I have a surplus and I need to give to meet your, your lack. And sometimes I lack something and you have a surplus and you give to meet my, my lack. He's talking about the principle of mutuality, reciprocity, that we give back and forth as, we have, as someone else has need and we, and we have a surplus. And the illustration that he uses is a dandy. It's from Exodus 16. Would you turn back there with me? It's a story of uh, manna, the manna. <clears throat> you know about, about the manna, don't you? That was God's provision during Israel's Death Valley days when they were roaming in the desert. Every day, it, uh, except on the Sabbath, it rained manna. This little white, some sort of white substance. We don't know what it was. They didn't know what it was. They looked at it and said in Hebrew, manna, what is it? And that's what it became, manna, what is it? And... Uh, they, they each had a quota, had a ration. They were to go out and to gather about a quart of manna a day. About the size of an ice cream, uh, quart ice cream carton. And that's how much it took to feed them through the, through the day. One quart per person of manna. I've often thought, <laughs> 
eating manna every day for 40 days, we get awfully old. He must have fried it and fricasseed it and made pancakes out of it and boiled it and broiled it and, as Keith Green says, made manicotti out of it and <laughs> banana bread. Someone has suggested that uh, Mrs. Moses wrote uh, a cookbook on 40 ways to fix manna. And, but that's what they had. That was God's provision. As, as Jesus describes it in John 6, it was the bread that came down from heaven. And uh, each was to go out every day except on the Sabbath day, and they were to gather an, an omer, which is a, about a quart. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. Some were fast on their feet, and they gathered their omer quickly. Others were infirmed or weak, or perhaps they were sick. Or uh, for one reason or another, they couldn't get out and gather their ration, and so they would come up short. They'd have a, a half an omer. Others would have an omer and a half. And uh, the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. It's that little phrase, they measured it with an omer, that's significant because what, what Moses is telling us here is not that some miraculous thing happened, and if you had a half omer, then your, your quart container uh, magically filled to the top. That's not what he's saying. There, there was something miraculous in the manna itself. That was a, uh, it was a miracle that God provided the manna. What happened is that someone would show up with an omer and a half, and he'd say, here, I've got too much, and he would share it with somebody else, and they leveled off the tops of their quart containers until everyone had just what they needed for the day. No one had too much, no, had to, no one had too little. You see what he's saying? They shared. If someone had more, they gave it to someone who had less. And that's the principle that Paul is establishing here. And we need to be looking around this body of believers and, and that other Christians around the city that we know and around the country and around the world. And if they have a lack, if they need money... If they need food, if they need clothes, and we have an abundance, then we need to share. That's one way to deaccumulate. You know, our tendency is, we're just all natural pack rats. I know we are. You know, the longer we get, longer we're married, the more junk we accumulate. We have boxes full of stuff that we will never use. I have a bag of golf clubs hanging in my, my garage that I have not used for 12 years. I'll never use them again. They're just hanging there. Uh, we have garage sales to get rid of stuff like that. But why don't we have garage giveaways? Really? Why don't we take all of our stuff that we don't want, all the junk that we've been accumulating that we never use and put it in our garage and get the word out to the body of Christ and anybody can come over and collect any of the stuff that's junk to us and it's a treasure to you. Why not? Ron Ritchie gave us a good idea last year in terms of accumulating toys. We go out and buy snowmobiles and motorcycles and... Some families have four or five snowmobiles, and some families don't have any. Uh, why not uh, five families get together and buy one or two snowmobiles and share it and take the rest of the money that we would spend on a snowmobile and give it to someone else who has a need? Why not? You can't drive the thing but so many hours a week anyway. Most of the time it just sits in your garage. Now, look in my garage. I've got two float tubes, four fly rods, two sets of waders, all this junk. I go fishing maybe twice a month. Well, why not share it? Why do you need to go out and buy a float tube? 
see? And we're all like that. We just, we just accumulate stuff and we put it in our garage and these are our possessions. And, and Paul says we need, to, we need to share them. We need to give them. We don't want to do that because we're afraid somebody will trash our flow tube or something. But that, that's all right. You know, we learn to take care of things. We need to be good stewards. But, but why, why do we have to have these things that are ours or mine when other people have need for them? How about, how about single parents? who have children who never get to go to camp. My kids go to get to go to camp every year. Why not take some of the money that I would use for something else and 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 give give that money to a family so that child can go to camp for the summer? Or why not plan an outing with my family because I we have a complete family, a father and a mother and, and children and invite along uh, a single mother or a single father, parent and and their child to spend the day with us. That's, see, that's sharing out of my surplus. We have the time. We can do it. We have a father in our family. Why not share it with somebody else? What about uh, single mothers who have to work all day and who come home and who have no time to themselves? Why not offer to babysit for a Saturday so they can get away by themselves? Or if you don't have the time to babysit, to pay for a babysitter so they can get away. See, that's the principle. Sharing out of our surplus with those that, that have need. And uh, then finally, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. I am fast running out of time. Paul says in verse 16, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is, he's, he's, uh, he's going to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose, ne- whose fame and the things of the gospel is spread throughout all the churches. Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. That is, the, this giving will glorify God. It will reflect his character and to show our readiness, Paul's readiness to remember the poor taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this large gift. It's the word he uses. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers literally apostles, if, if you notice the side note in the New American Standard, of the churches, a glory to Christ. Paul was concerned about, about the, the way people looked, at the way he handled this, these funds. He didn't want the rumor to spread that somehow he was misappropriating funds, and so he had three people, three delegates, from the churches in Macedonia accompany him uh, and, and pick up this gift. One we know is Titus. The other two are unnamed. There's no need to even speculate who they are. We don't know. Paul would have told us if he'd wanted us to know. But they're two brothers that the churches in Macedonia believed in. and they, In fact, they called them apostles, which gives dignity to their tasks. They were sent out by the chur- uh, churches for the purpose of accompanying Titus and delivering this gift to Jerusalem. Because Paul says, we want to appear in the eyes of men as honest our integrity is at stake in this thing, in what Paul is saying. 
is that we need, we must, we must be responsible in our handling of other people's funds. We are stewards of other people's money, which means that when we give, we need to be cautious about who we give to and be certain that there are people that that, uh, are above board, whose accounting systems are reliable, whose books are open so that, that, that we know that they're honest and that we need to be honest in handling our funds. Paul says, it's foolish to say, I don't care who what people think of what I do. It is not foolish. We do need to live out our lives before God and please Him ultimately, but we ought to handle funds in such a way that there is no question about our honesty. That's that's Paul's point here in this passage. Now, if I can summarize, I would do so in terms of four words. The first is, is generosity. Once we understand what Christ has given, then we can give without coercion, without pressure. It just comes out of a, a full and open heart. The second principle is that of mutuality, reciprocity, sharing back and, and forth what, what we have, mutual give and take. The third would be accountability, uh, showing honor, honesty in all that, that we do. And then fourth, and perhaps most important, is this principle, again, of of availability. What God wants is for us to give ourselves to him. And once we do that, then the issue of giving is settled. Once we get to know him, and we come to appreciate his character, and what a lover, and what a giver he is, then we begin to reflect his character. See, that's that's the essential message of the gospel. Our sanctification is the result of looking at the face of Jesus, as Paul puts it. It says we look at him and reflect upon him and love him and give our devotion to him and worship him and depend upon him that our character begins to change. And stingy, uptight, acquisitive, greedy, materialistic people like us begin to change so that we want to give. So what Paul wants us to do is to center our thoughts upon Christ. Now, the, the thing to do at this point, I suppose, would be to pass the collection plate. <laughs> but if I did, I wouldn't ask you to put money into it. I'd ask you and me to hop into the plate. Because that's really what God wants. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, wholly acceptable, That is the most reasonable act of worship, he says, the most logical response to God's love that you can give. He just wants us. He wants you and me. That's all. Doesn't want your money. Doesn't want your time. Doesn't want your energy. Doesn't want your gifts. Doesn't want your effort. He just wants you. And then he'll take your time and your gifts and your energy and your effort and he'll make it available to others. See, that's the principle. So just give yourself to him because of what he's given to you. Let's pray. Let's stand uh, together, shall we? As we pray. And will you take this moment in in your own sanctuary, in, in your own heart, where God lives, and respond to him on the basis of what you've learned from the Apostle Paul in this passage. This is Paul's appeal to us as well. Say to him, 
Lord, I give you my life, my money, my time, my talents, my home, my vehicles, my investments, everything that I have, I give to you. Lord, we realize that any gift we give is is something that ultimately belongs to you. It's not ours to have and to possess. We, as the hymn puts it, we give thee but thy own. And we want you to, to know that we, we recognize that that's so. The, the very breath that we breathe, the health that we enjoy, the strength of body and mind that we possess comes from you. There's not anything that, that we can take credit for. And uh, we want you to know that, that we know that. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so we, we give you back what is rightfully yours, and we ask that we might turn into giving, loving, caring people who share what we have. We thank you for these words in your, in your word the wisdom that we gain from it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.